From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. In 1961, Dr. Jonathan Beckwith earned his PhD in chemistry from Harvard. After completing his postdoctoral studies in world-famous laboratories throughout Europe studying bacterial genetics, he came back to Boston and began his tenure at Harvard Medical School's Department of Bacteriology and Immunology in 1969. Since then, Beckwith's lab has studied gene regulation and mutation, exporting and signaling proteins, disulfide bond formation, and more before its closing last year. Before one can understand Dr. Beckwith's science, they should first become familiar with the thoughtful consideration he had for the social and political landscape that changed the lens through which he viewed his work. Witnessing the creation of the atomic bomb had a profound effect on Dr. Beckwith and led to his awareness of the potential perils of scientific discovery. His career has spanned radical moments in history like the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Vietnam War, and his science has been defined by cries for social justice. Welcome to the first part of our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Beckwith about his science that has spanned half a century. Welcome to the show, Dr. Beckwith. Glad to be here. Um, can you start by telling us a little bit about your background, your history? I grew up in the Boston area. Uh, actually, I was born in Cambridge. My parents moved to Newton. I went to high school in Newton. I think one of the things that I carried over from that my high school period was uh, being very aware of uh, atomic bombs and atomic scientists, uh, and particularly of J. Robert Oppenheimer, um, because of his involvement in making the the atomic bomb, but also his regrets about it, um, which had a great impact and uh, was covered in the newspapers all the time. I was best in school at at, um, mathematics, and I entered Harvard undergraduate school, starting off thinking I was going to be a major in, in mathematics. But in part because of what I was attracted to in other th- courses I was taking that were non-scientific courses, I felt there was a little life missing from mathematics that I couldn't grasp onto is what, why, it, why it should be interesting to me. Um, so I switched into chemistry at some point about halfway through my undergraduate period. I think as I as I switched into chemistry and was in the chemistry department as a graduate student, um, I had problems with it. I felt that it was a very conservative environment and also very bothered by how um, we were kind of servants to our, our professors, although the professor I worked with, I think, was a very easygoing guy. For the most part, the professors in that department at that time were, were very kind of strict mm. with their students. Um, and I got to the point of actually uh, rebelling in a sense of 
talking to other students about how they felt about it and even talking to some of the professors. Uh, and I had actually written a letter to the Harvard Crimson talking about uh, that we weren't able to lead lives out, almost outside of our our uh, laboratory work and that we should be devoting ourselves full time or we really weren't good scientists. And I thought we should have this should should be something broader about life than than just uh, working away in the lab. Right. And this this is actually where the many years previous to having gone to graduate school, I'd been thinking about the Oppenheimer uh, situation. And I had the sense from that that science could have can do wonderful things, but can also have consequences that are not so wonderful. And in the letter I wrote, which never got published, I have to say, mm-hmm. um, I referred to Oppenheimer himself as an example of someone who was kind of very saddened by what became of the, the work that he had done. And I talked to a bunch of students. I talked to one uh, professor who said he he thought I was right in my thinking about it, but he had a grant from the United States Navy, and he was afraid if he got involved in anything, um, he might lose his grants. Um, and some of the students got pretty nervous too, so I I couldn't get all the signatures on the thing. And mm-hmm. even though I'd sent it to the uh, Crimson at the beginning, and they were interested, but they wanted more more people on it. Um, that was the first time I'd ever really been involved in any way of, of something that you might call political or, or social activism. At the same time, because of this feeling of, of the conservative environment, I wasn't sure I wanted to continue in science. And that all changed when I was writing a paper for uh, a course taught by Jim Watson at Harvard. Uh, and I had to write a paper on a particular subject, how how um, small compounds are transported into bacterial cells. And in doing that, I came across the work of, which had been done mostly in Paris by a group, the, the two major members of which were these scientists, Francois Jacob and Jacques Monod, who were researchers at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. And, and during college, I developed a love for not only science, but also for French, and French literature, and even French philosophy. So um, that's not why I fell in love with the French scientists, but it was wonderful to, <laughs> to find that I, I was enchanted by uh, this work in, in Paris. So I read, spent a lot of time in the library reading uh, the papers in French, and became so enamored of the genetic research that they were doing at the Pasteur Institute that I decided to stay in science after all and uh, apply to see if I could find a position in their laboratory. I had this determination to get into into the Pasteur Institute as a, as a student of, of uh, Jacob Monod. I ended up with Francois Jacob, but it still took a, a little time. I went to graduate school, spoke to the French 
Professor Francois Jacob when he visited Harvard and asked if uh, I could come to his lab, and he said, uh, no, that it was too full already and there wasn't any space. And he recommended that I go work with someone else in the same field and then then apply again. And uh, I did uh, start my first postdoctoral work with uh, Arthur Pardee was at the University of California at Berkeley, which was kind of the center of uh, or the beginning of a lot of the activism at the time. It was very unlike Harvard in that as you walked around the campus, there were people on soapboxes giving speeches. And then uh, he, my, Pardee moved from University of California, Berkeley, to Princeton, where I actually, with my wife did uh, and our baby, uh, did our, our first protest march, which was about the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, when people like us and other, pretty much everyone else, were, were pretty worried about what the consequences of that were going to be, whether there was going to be atomic war. I applied again to Francois Jacob to get in his lab, and again he said, oh, I'm sorry, but I still don't have room. <laughs> um, so I went to England to work with another quite well-known bacterial geneticist, uh, William Hayes, in London. And for the second time, I ended up doing a, a march, protest march, and that was an anti-nuke uh, march that was taking place in London. And one thing I, I found as I went to different labs in Europe, that there was much more political discussion among scientists than there was uh, or had been in the United States. And that was true in, in London and Cambridge, England, where I was, and then when we went uh, to Paris also. And in Paris, the person I collaborated with was a communist, which was kind of weird for me at the time uh, because communists were such enemies in our country, supposedly. Um, and the other thing that happened in Paris was uh, having met uh, an American who was an expatriate living there. I started spending time with him, and most of his friends were uh, African-American ex exiles from the United States. Uh, who were working in, in Paris in various ways. And uh, I saw things happen like when um, Malcolm X came to Paris, the president of France, de Gaulle, uh, sent him back to the United States. And there was a real dismay that I heard more and more of uh, from my friends that I was meeting uh, and getting much more of a sense of the situation uh, of blacks in the United States. Um, so that was an influence, and the the politics in France was an influence um, that I think uh, now went far beyond my thinking of probably even naive thinking about Oppenheimer because in many ways I really didn't know what was happening. I only learned it uh, really well when I started teaching a course where I used... Uh, Oppen a biography of Oppenheimer is a basis for it. Imagining that I would change students in this way I had been changed uh, at a fairly early point in my life. And what is your specific field of study? Where did you start your field of study? 
my thesis work was something very different from what I ended up doing when mm -hmm. I went to the Pasteur Institute. Uh, the work was on um, much more biochemical kind of studies directly, and also working with um, fungi. fungi. Um, and so what I was doing was switching from one organism to another, from fungi to uh, bacteria, and doing genetics work, which I had never touched before. But as I said, I got so enchanted with the genetics work I saw that I started to read up on everything I could about, about genetic approaches. We've worked in the laboratory over the years on many, always working with the same organism, uh, E. coli, the bacteria E. coli, um, and trying to understand how various processes in the cell works. And as I started out with uh, Jacob and Minot at the Pasteur Institute, my initial studies were about um, trying to understand more deeply how genes are regulated and expressed. And uh, the genes that they had worked on and that I continued working on early on, so that would be the, the late 60s and early 70s, and in some senses, working with that particular set of genes that they had worked with is something that I continued to work with to the very end of, of the functioning of our laboratory. Um, so the system that they were looking at in bacteria was... Uh, the ability of bacteria to be able to use lactose as a source of carbon, as a food food for themselves. And there were, the enzyme that they studied in particular was beta-galactosidase, which is an enzyme which breaks down certain sugars into um, glucose. So glucose being a very uh, rich food for bacteria as it is for anyone else. And so when I came back and uh, took the job at Harvard in, in the um, mid-60s, uh, we started to work with um, various aspects of the, these lac genes involved in lactose metabolism. And in the process, we accidentally fell into a way of isolating the lac gene from the chromosome of the bacteria. And it actually didn't take much time. Within a year of realizing that we could do this, we had purified the lac gene um, from the E. coli. And this attracted a lot of attention because it was the first time a gene, pure gene from a bacteria had been isolated or any gene had been actually pulled out of a chromosome and, and purified. So it was... It was a feat, and it was it presented a possible way of, of purifying genes and studying how they work more more closely. Uh, but probably within about four years, a new new techniques developed, uh, and they really started moving very rapidly. And it was really the era when uh, people were manipulating genes and beginning to find ways to to study in much more depth than they could have before that time. That is, they couldn't really have the genes in their hands to, mm -hmm. to study. They had to do it with the whole bacteria up to that point. When we isolated the genes, some of us uh, 
and probably led by me because I, it's something I'd worry about, again, post-Oppenheimer, was the worry, what will people do with genes? Will they start manipulating them in such a way that they can affect human genetics uh, directly? Um, and as a result of the, this background and this achievement and this worry, we decided to call a press conference when the paper was published. And during the press conference, we described what we'd done and how we'd purified the gene. But at the same time, we talked about uh, our concerns that these findings might be misused eventually. And we spoke in the context of um, the war that was going on at the Vietnam War that was going on at the time and other aspects of genetics that could be used in, in dangerous ways. Um, so that achieved a lot of publicity, but it also generated a lot of annoyance, at least among other scientists, that one shouldn't be saying negative things about science because it, they might cut back on our grants. But also it was an era where there was a, a lot of uh, social activism about the war and, and many other things. Um, and I was influenced by that also. As a result of the press conference, and I was forced to think about more deeply what I, what I was concerned about in genetics and how possible it was, and, and kind of embedded myself more in, in reading some history and some philosophy of science. And it, there was also at the time a group called Science for the People, which brought in together scientists from all different areas uh, who were um, concerned about these issues and working together and talking about their own fields and what they were worried about. In fact, much of that activi activism among scientists in that period started with physicists because of the, the uh, atomic bomb issue. Uh, which they had remained to be active even well after World War II. And for instance, during that period, trying to stop the testing of atomic and hydrogen bonds. But also, they were concerned about development of new weapons that came, they felt had come out of their own research. When I came back to Harvard Medical School in 1965, uh, one of the earliest things that happened was that... Uh, there was, there was activism here at, at Harvard Medical School. There were uh, many people were signing petitions that were published in the New York Times opposing the war, et cetera. And one of the faculty members um, asked me to uh, take over when he, he was leaving and, and moving to Dartmouth College. Um, so I was meeting a lot of people who shared my concerns about um, these political issues, but also in some cases about scientific issues. Um, and within a few years uh, of arriving at Harvard, uh, the assassination of Martin Luther King occurred, which is 1968. And I called up uh, one of the other faculty members I'd met who had the same concerns I did about many of these issues. And together, we organized a, a committee to come up with some proposals to the medical school uh, regarding the, the uh, treatment and um, 
uh, or lack of efforts uh, to deal with the racial issues in the United States. Um, and in particular, uh, we very early on learned that the, the number of black students per year was one, was actually one every two years. So it was effectively a half of uh, African-American students every year. So we, among the things we proposed, uh, which were many, uh, was the proposal that um, they greatly increase the number of minority students at Harvard Medical School. And we met and wrote proposals on, on other issues, too. The only one that actually the, the medical school really acted on was the um, uh, admitting black students into the uh, medical student class. Um, and after several years of debates and Harvard faculty meetings, um, they finally accepted our proposal. Once I got into these things, I was becoming more and more active and one of the things that disturbed me was uh, in 1969, I learned that the medical school was trying to take over a region of, uh, they'd been buying out houses in the Mission Hill area and had been uh, planning to tear those houses down and to build housing for faculty members. And um, Basically, they would, it was a community that was a very mixed, uh, unusually mixed uh, community of people. Um, and they were not happy about it, but probably didn't feel they could do much about it. And be actually, before I got directly involved, several students at uh, the undergraduate college, Harvard College, went and contacted the, the community and talked with them about the possibility that Doing, having demonstrations and, and doing other things might actually uh, cause Harvard to, to back down on what they were doing. So I got involved by uh, joining a committee of Harvard people that were looking into the issues, but it seemed to me they were going nowhere. And I ended up leading an uh, occupation of Dean Ebert, Dean, Dean Ebert at the time of the medical school occupied his office until he agreed to go and in, into the community, meet the community people, and, and see exactly what was being done, which was that the realty company that was buying up the property for Harvard was uh, doing all sorts of things to make it very uncomfortable for people to live there. At the end, there was enough publicity so that Harvard back down, agreed not to tear the neighborhood down, and in fact, uh, contributed to building a, a, a building that you see on, on uh, Huntington Avenue that became a big community center. Next time on Think Research, we hear more from Dr. Beckwith about his work in lactose gene regulation and how he located a gene promoter that famous French biochemist Jacques Monod had missed. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.com. 
thinkresearch.edu/slash thinkresearch.